Hello and welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. It is Monday morning, which means that we have a new episode for you. I'm Andy Alexander, and joining me today is... Savannah Finbert. So great to have you back here in the recording studio. Thank you so much, Andy. So today you are interviewing Maeve McIver about her recent book, and you're talking about legal activism um, and abortion rhetoric in the UK. Can you tell us a little about this episode? Yeah, absolutely. So it was my pleasure to get a chance to interview Dr. McIver about her work. Um, I had come across her book, Representing God, actually, in a religion and law reading group that I was doing over at OSU, uh, Ohio State University. And um, I was really excited to have the opportunity to ask her some questions about um, you know, the book, the content of the book and the, the questions about legal activism and abortion rhetoric among evangelicals in the UK is fascinating in and of itself. But also as a graduate student, I had uh, a lot of questions about like methodology, about ethnography, you know, as a discourse analyst myself, like I haven't had a lot of experience with eth- with ethnography as a method. And so being able to chat with Maeve about how um, ethnography as a method impacts the way that your study uh, occurs, uh, you know, how you um, kind of, you form relationships with your interlocutors, right? But you have to also suspend your judgment when you're writing analytically as a scholar and and how do you juggle all of these, you know, identities, um, and so we had we talked a lot about that. We talked about her inspiration for the book and her interests and where her work is going next. Um, I'm really excited. She's going to be, uh, it sounds like, coming over to the U.S. to do her field work in the future. So having some comparisons between um, evangelical activism in the U.S. and in the U.K. will be really, really interesting, I think. Um, and also, uh, we had a fun moment where we talked about uh, conceptions of reality how uh, important it is that we understand that sometimes our interlocutors uh, have a very different definition and very different structure for understanding the world than we do. And that, you know, uh, uh, trying to understand those perspectives are kind of the first step in making sense of some of the things that happen that are happening constantly around us. So um, it's a great interview. I hope everybody enjoys. Excellent. This sounds very interesting. And it sounds like there's going to be really a lot of great uh, information, both about just the topic in general, but also ways in which folks can approach these issues and and, and discourses. Um, so I can't wait to hear it. This is Religious Legal Activism, Abortion Rhetoric Among British Evangelicals with Maeve McIver by you, Savannah Fenver. Take it away. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Religious Studies Project. I'm your host, Savannah Finver, and I am so excited today to be joined by Dr. Maeve McIver. Dr. McIver is lecturer in social anthropology at the University of Manchester, where her work focuses on human rights, religious activism, and the legal regulation of religion in Europe and the United States. Prior to joining Manchester's Department of Social Anthropology in autumn 2021, Dr. McIver held a junior research fellowship at the University of Oxford and taught anthropology and religious studies at University College London and the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. 
She is the author of Representing God, Christian Legal Activism in Contemporary England, published in 2020 by Princeton University Press. And her current research explores the relationship between faith, civic engagement, and the pursuit of social justice among a progressive religious community in the U.S. Southwest. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. McIver. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. As am I. I, well, first of all, I just want to say I, we're going to spend the bulk of our interview today focusing on your, on your book that came out in 2020, Representing God. Um, and uh, just as a reminder for, for listeners, the full title is Representing God, Christian Legal Activism in Contemporary England, published through Princeton University Press. Uh, and for folks that are interested in religion and law or religion and politics, which also happens to be my area, um, I really can't recommend your book highly enough. Um, but just before, uh, for those who haven't had the opportunity to read it yet, I was wondering, um, before we get too much in the weeds, um, if you could tell us a little bit about what, first of all, what inspired you to pursue the project? And then maybe a little bit about, um, like, if you could give just a summary of, of what the book is, what the argument of the book is about. Yeah, well, I mean, first off, thank you so much for your kind words about the book. Uh, that's lovely to hear. And, um, and thank you for sort of giving me the, um, the opportunity to talk about it today. So in terms of, um, I guess, the, the kind of origin story of, of representing God, it really dates back to my, um, to my undergraduate days. So I was an undergrad at the London School of Economics, uh, and I studied law with anthropology. And, um, and, and my favorite course was Human Rights and Civil Liberties. And when we looked at the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion, um, one of the cases that we looked at was the case of Lydia Playfoot, uh, who was a 16-year-old schoolgirl in West Sussex who wanted to wear a purity ring to school. So a, a purity ring, um, for those who maybe aren't familiar, is um, it's, a, it's a ring that you wear to sort of indicate your commitment to chastity before marriage. Um, there's this organization uh, founded in Arizona, I believe, called the Silver Ring Thing. And you can buy these, uh, these rings um, from this organization that are kind of inscribed with a, a Bible reference about what evangelicals would call sexual purity. So it's, it's part of a kind of um, evangelical subculture that's, that's come to be called purity culture. And, uh, and as I say, it, it started in the United States. So, so Lydia Playfoot wanted to wear this ring to school, but her school had a really strict uniform policy that didn't allow jewelry, so she wasn't allowed. Um, she felt that this was unfair, and so uh, supported by a Christian lobby group, she actually went to court to argue that this uniform policy breached her, her human right to freedom of religion, uh, because her, you know, her desire to, to wear this ring was, was rooted in her Christian beliefs about sex and about marriage. And as, as an undergraduate, I was just completely fascinated by this case. Um, I mean, for a whole host of reasons. But for one thing, I just found it so interesting that a 16-year-old felt so strongly about this that she was willing to go to court over it. You know, this it wasn't just a piece of jewelry for her. It was obviously this, this really significant kind of part, part of her identity. Um, and, you know, I'm, so I'm from Ireland, uh, where the majority of schools are actually connected to, to the Catholic Church. Uh, and so in a way, I, I sort of had this feeling that I had had the opposite problem that Lydia Playfoot had had. Um, I'd had a little too much religion, I felt, at school. Um, and I, I remember, you know, being a teenager in this conservative Catholic school in Dublin, and also being very frustrated with the school's uniform policy because it wouldn't let me have, you know, pink hair or a nose ring. Um, but I, you know, I never would have gone to court over it. 
so so I kind of I, I just really wanted to know what would motivate someone to take a case like this through the legal system. Um, and that, you know, it, it, it sort of seemed to me that this ring, it, it obviously had a had a kind of significance that I that I didn't grasp, you know, that that I sort of didn't have the um, the the kind of theological tools at that time to to understand. Um, the other thing that I found really fascinating about this case was the was the content of, of Playfoot's claim. So this religious commitment to chastity or, or kind of purity culture. And, and the reason that that was so interesting to me was because, you know, I had sort of assumed that this kind of conservative Christianity was solely an American phenomenon. So something that you might see in the United States, but not something that would sort of appeal to, you know, to, to school kids on this side of the Atlantic. Now, I, I kind of look back on this now and I see my own um, incredible ignorance. But but at the time, you know, I'd lived in London for three years. And so far as I knew, you know, to my knowledge, I'd never met a conservative evangelical. Um, or, I mean, if I, you know, I'd never met anyone with those views, or at least if I had, they they certainly weren't sharing those views with me. So so I was just really surprised uh, that this this kind of religious movement that I very much associated with the United States was was also operative in the UK. And um, like it, so it was the purity culture element that that kind of seemed very U.S. specific, but it was also the fact of going to court and the fact that this issue was framed as an issue of religious freedom. So there's, you know, there's sort of a cliche that uh, that people in the United States are maybe a little more litigious than we than we are here in Europe. Um, but there's also an element of truth to that, I think, particularly when it comes to religious freedom type issues, right? So the, you know, the kind of the culture of First Amendment litigation in the U.S. is it's just very different from um, from the way that kind of rights and, and civil liberties are, are kind of recognized or protected here. So, so there were these kind of multiple elements about this case which which really interested me and which were surprising to me. Um, you know, it was it was like it had its kind of origins almost in a in a different kind of jurisdiction, uh, a different context somewhere where there was a very different understanding of, of you know, what kind of religion is acceptable in public. Um, and, and yet it was kind of being, being played out in this English court. But I, I then found out that actually Lydia Playfoot was not the only person um, making the sort of American-style argument about, about uh, religious liberty in, in the UK or, or through the English legal system. So I, I started noticing this kind of growing body of cases cropping up where uh, Christians in England, almost all of them from conservative Protestant backgrounds, were, uh, were, were arguing that their right to religious liberty was under threat. So these cases have included, you know, hotel or, or B&B owners who, who don't want to let double bedrooms to LGBTQ couples, um, registrars who refuse to perform same-sex civil partnerships, um, Teachers and doctors who were, you know, disciplined for for offering prayer to uh, to patients and students, and as well some cases involving um, uniform policies, which um, which which don't allow purity rings or uh, cross necklaces. So, so the facts of these cases are are very similar to to what you might sort of see in um, in the U.S. and I mean in in lots of jurisdictions actually, but the outcomes are very very different. So unlike in the U.S., where, where conservative Christians have had quite a bit of success uh, with these cases, you know, cases like Hobby Lobby and Masterpiece Cake Shop, here in the U.K., they do not. So the vast majority of these Christian uh, kind of religious freedom cases are lost um, precisely because the idea of religious liberty, it, 
it just doesn't have the same sort of special status here as it does in the US. Um, so, I mean, in, in Lydia Playfoot's case, for example, the court rejected her argument that, that wearing a purity ring was a religious act to begin with. So from the court's perspective, you know, not only was her religious freedom not violated by, by the school's uniform policy, but actually they argued that freedom of religion wasn't even really engaged. So the court here was making a sort of theological judgment about what counted as a manifestation of religion. So what counted as Christianity? And it decided that wearing a purity ring didn't count. So, so that's sort of my, um, my very long and roundabout way of, of explaining, me, uh, explaining what first drew me to this project, um, which was kind of my, my interest in cases like this. So this, this growing movement of conservative Christians in England who were making these almost kind of um, like American-inspired religious freedom arguments in court, despite the fact that they, they hardly ever won these cases and that they often um, received quite a bit of hostility for, for doing so. So as an anthropologist, my, uh, my methodology here was, um, was participant observation or deep hanging out. So I hung out at a, a Christian lobby group and legal aid center called the Christian Legal Center, which is the lobby group that had litigated Lydia Playfoot's case and actually the majority of the cases like it. Um, and I also hung out at an evangelical church in London, which I call Christchurch. And the, the purpose of doing this sort of um, multi-sided research was, was so that I wasn't just looking at these kind of very high profile and fairly uh, mediatized cases, but, but I was also looking at how they were being um, kind of understood and discussed by, by other conservative Christians on the ground. And, and so the overall um, kind of argument that I make in the book is that this legal activism both, uh, both reflects and, and kind of contributes to the secularization that it's, you know, that it's seeking to challenge. Um, and that's because of the category of religion and how that category tends to operate in, in law. So obviously to, to kind of flesh th this out fully, um, so to, to flesh this out properly, you'd need to, um, to read the book, which obviously I encourage listeners to do. Um, but, but basically my argument is that if you, if you take a case arguing that, you know, this particular belief or practice should be protected because it's quote unquote religious, then what you end up doing is that you kind of remove that belief or practice from, from the realm of a kind of shared cultural common sense. So you end up putting it in a box marked religion, a box that is now separate from politics and economics and kinship, something that's sort of been separated out from most of social life. Um, so, so these kind of ideas and practices that were, that were once you know, shared fairly, uh, fairly widely uh, by, by a population instead get presented as a kind of minority interest. So in that sense, I argue these legal cases have a kind of secularizing effect. So when I, um, when I say kind of secularization here, I, I don't mean it in the sense of, say, declining rates of attendance at, uh, at places of worship or, or, or something like that. Um, I'm sort of more thinking or coming from this position that religion itself is a kind of secular category, right? So it's, it's really only by inhabiting a particular kind of secular modernity that we're even able to imagine religion as a separate and, and ultimately marginal part of social life, right? Something that you, you might opt into, but you might not. So for these, you know, for legal activists to, um, to kind of frame their beliefs and practices as, as manifestations of religion is, is ultimately to secularize them because it separates them out from daily life. 
um, from from any kind of you know sense of shared English culture, and it pre- it presents them as this sort of um, minority interest that that maybe only certain people have have a stake in. So so that's sort of a, a primer to the book's argument, but um, there's a there's a lot more in there too. Yeah, it. I think you do such a great job illustrating that all the way through your argument comes through so strongly. And it was fascinating for me as somebody who both lives and studies primarily in the U.S., looking at U.S. legal cases, conceptions of religion that are coming out of uh, U.S. law, you know, and and liberal democracy and pluralism here. Um, it's remarkable how similar the arguments mm-hmm. sound, right? Um, yes. But but ultimately the different outcomes are are very interesting and in the way in which you know it, it seems to be a, a conscientious effort in the US to split religion off as something special and protected right um, whereas in the UK without that kind of history as you were just explaining um there's you know first of all the judges are weighing in more obviously on theological questions about what mm-hmm. does and does not qualify as religion, right? Right. Um, um, but also the ways in which um, the the legal argument almost doesn't fit <laughs> in their court system because they don't have quite the same history as we do here in the U.S. So exactly, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, you know, religion is protected, but it's protected in the same way that many other kinds of identities and um, and kind of rights are protected. And oftentimes, when there is a, a kind of conflict between rights, because religion is seen as this sort of optional add-on as opposed to a, a sort of inherent part of a person's identity. Um, it tends to be the right that is kind of asked to give way when when conflicts arise. Wow, that's so interesting to me because because it's the kind of the opposite here mm-hmm. in the U.S., right? It's usually the you know everything else is supposed to give way for religion, and right. so other kinds of discrimination, like in the um, masterpiece cake shop right. um, case that you mentioned, you know when when there's an issue between. Um, uh, you know, same-sex marriage and religion. Religion is seen as the primary identifier. That's seen right. as as the essence of the person. Um, whereas uh, same-sex is kind of an outside um, identity marker. So, yeah, that's so fascinating to me. And it was it stuck with me throughout the book as I was reading. Um, I do want to ask you a question about your methodology. I know you mm-hmm. mentioned it already, um, but I would like to um, get into the weeds a little bit more <laughs> with you. Um, so, um, you know, as you might know that we we already, uh, or we love talking about methodology here uh, on the Religious Studies Project. Um, but for me especially, I am a, a, I'm a self-identify as a discourse analyst, right? I haven't done very much ethnography at all. Um, and so I would love to hear a little bit more about your background in anthropology. Um, I would love to hear about how it informed your project and your decision to um, use ethnography as your method, your primary method. Um, and especially one thing that I've been thinking about in my own graduate study is, you know, how far can discourse analysis get us if we're not actively participating uh, with the groups mm-hmm. we study, if we're not engaging in a deep dive mm-hmm. um, into those communities, are we only really scratching the surface? And I would love to hear um, what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, no, that's a it's a it's a really interesting um, question. I mean, I would say you know I sort of I didn't like make a decision to to do ethnography so much as that decision was made for me, you know, by the discipline. 
Um, I mean, anthropology is really is really defined by ethnography as you know the the discipline that both kind of conducts and produces um, ethnography, and uh, and and that's I think maybe especially the case at a at a place like the LSE where I did my PhD, um, where there's a, a real commitment to a kind of um, Malinovskian idea of long term immersive fieldwork. So, so maybe just for those for those listeners who maybe aren't so uh, familiar with with anthropology or with um, kind of British anthropology at least, one of the origin myths in in our discipline is this this story of Bronislaw Malinowski, who was a, a kind of early twentieth century anthropologist at the LSE, who went out to the Trobriand Islands in Melanesia and ended up being stranded there when World War One broke out in Europe. So, because Malinowski was uh, was born in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, he was classified as an enemy alien by the British government, which meant that he couldn't couldn't return to England and and was sort of stranded. And so, unlike the kind of armchair anthropologists who'd who'd come before him, who had you know written their accounts of of different cultures and communities on the basis of reports that were sent to them by you know, missionaries or colonizers or soldiers, uh, Malinowski sort of used this time to learn the local language and observe, you know, local customs and, and to sort of get a sense, uh, in, in his words, of the imponderabilia of everyday life in the Trobrians. So he, he sort of said that the goal of the ethnographer was to try to grasp their interlocutor's point of view, to, to sort of realize their vision of, of their world. And then this kind of became, you know, standard anthropological practice that, you know, that if you want to understand a community, you actually have to go and live with that community and learn the local language and, you know, eat the local food and, and take part in the local rituals. So, of course, that was that was what I was, you know, expected to do. Um, now, now, as I said, this is obviously a kind of mythologized narrative. Uh, Malinowski didn't didn't really invent fieldwork for one thing, and his uh, his posthumously published diaries showed that he didn't really achieve the uh, the kind of lofty goals that he had set himself. So there's you know there's lots to uh, to sort of uh, critique when it comes to Malinowski. So I I don't want to paint too romantic a, a, a picture of him, but I think this aspiration of trying to grasp someone else's point of view, this idea of trying to understand someone else's vision of their world. That's that's something that that anthropologists today really do still aspire to, and that you know that I certainly aspire to. So so that's kind of the the tradition that that I'm coming from at the LSE, one that really sort of values long term immersive fieldwork with with a particular community. So for me, that was 22 months, so almost two years in the field. It began with uh, six months at the Christian Legal Center, where I would hang out, you know, nine to five on weekdays and made a lot of cups of tea and coffee, did some kind of light secretarial work. And, uh, and I would accompany the staff um, and, and clients of the Christian Legal Center to, uh, to court cases, but also to, say, conferences that they were putting on and to um, protests or, or demonstrations. So, so that was sort of how I got to know the, um, the Christian Legal Center staff and, and clients. And then I also spent 16 months at a conservative evangelical church. So this is the church that I call Christ Church. So at Christ Church, I would go to services twice a day on Sunday. I joined a women's Bible study group. I did uh, one-on-one Bible studies with two different women. Um, I went to the monthly prayer meeting. I did a bunch of Christian courses. Um, I volunteered on the church's coffee rota and cooking rota and attended the annual genu- uh, general meeting and, and things like that. And, and at the same time, I was also sort of attending Christian Legal Center events and, uh, and court cases kind of throughout that period. So, so that was really how I got to know people, um, how, I, how I kind of tried to understand their vision of their, of their world. And um, I mean, in terms of, of kind of methodological distinctions, you know, certainly from, from my perspective, 
spending that kind of time was was really essential. So, I mean, to pick up on the idea of discourse analysis, you know, if I if I just done discourse analysis, you know, maybe I could have analyzed legal judgments, or I could have analyzed the Christian Legal Center's press releases, or I could have analyzed, you know, evangelical church sermons. And and certainly I would have, you know, I would have learned something from that, right? You know, I, I would have been able to maybe answer um, sort of preset research questions on the basis of, of that kind of, of work. But I think what, what ethnography allows you to do, and maybe um, what's kind of special about ethnography, is that it really allows you to answer these questions that you didn't even know that you had before you entered the field. So it, it kind of opens up these new areas of of kind of theoretical analysis that you that you really couldn't have known were relevant prior to fieldwork, um, precisely because they're you know they're kind of not obvious to people who are on the who are on the outside and are looking in, um, but maybe don't have much sort of detailed knowledge of a of a community. So, for example, it was it was really only through um, kind of going to Bible studies and listening to months and months worth of uh, of sermons on the concept of grace that I was able to understand why so many of my interlocutors at Christchurch were, were kind of ambivalent about the cases taken by the Christian Legal Center, um, even though they themselves held the same beliefs as, as many of the people involved in those cases. So their, their worry was that the cases, um, they sort of, they seemed to suggest that Christians either had to do or couldn't do certain things. So like they had to wear purity rings or they couldn't, say, counsel gay couples. Um, and, and so at Christchurch, they worried that this might give the impression to outsiders that Christianity was really just about following rules and regulations, right? That it was a set of things that you had to do or that you couldn't do. Um, whereas they would argue that actually Christianity is about um, this kind of gift of divine grace. And so that actually really, really mattered to them, this possible, um, the way that the cases might possibly misrepresent what Christianity was about, because it, it gets to this question of salvation, Right of of whether you are saved or damned for eternity, which, which of course is kind of the you know the ultimate question if if you are an evangelical Christian. So from my sort of outsider perspective, as a a very lapsed Irish Catholic with uh, with no prior exposure to evangelical theology, there was just no way that I could have grasped the significance of this kind of theological idea for them without spending those those months in the field. Um. So, yeah, so I think fieldwork is very important for, for that reason. But it's also sort of important just on a human level in that I think it's, it's good to get to know people as people. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, you know, I didn't just learn about my interlocutors' views about, say, human rights or, or legal activism or public religion. Um, I also learned about their favorite ice cream flavors, um, their family lives, um, their thoughts on the HPV vaccine the books they read, you know, the, the kinds of things that they made jokes about, but also the kinds of things that they wouldn't make jokes about. And, and they learned all of those things about me as well. Um, and that's kind of a real, a real kind of privilege, I think, of, of ethnography is um, getting to know people on this kind of intimate level. So, I mean, in the book, obviously, I don't necessarily write all, of, you know, about all of that, but it, um, but it did sort of shape my writing. And, and so that was important, too, in that I, I kind of didn't want to write caricatures of people. I, I wanted people to be three-dimensional in the writing. I think that comes across very clearly. It did for me while I was reading the book that the, the your interlocutors that I was reading about felt like real people with real concerns to me. And I think um, when we 
you know, I, I, in my work, I've tend to tended to zoom out to look mm-hmm. at larger structural issues. And I think that that work is also extremely important, but mm-hmm. you, you lose when you zoom out that far, you lose some of that individuality of people and, you know, right. kind of, yeah, the deep dive into uh, what are the things that they're thinking about, you know, and, and how really these, um, uh, these, uh, you know, whether, you know, religious ideas or ideologies that they're confronting in their daily lives, how those are shaping them into the people that they are and, and the decisions that they make. Right. Um, but it's, I guess it's good to be able to use these different methodologies in tandem. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think that that's something that your book really brought to the fore for me. Um, you know, I was reading, I was reading Representing God right at the beginning of my graduate, mm-hmm. uh, of my PhD program. And um, you know, I hadn't had a lot of exposure to ethnographies before that. And I think, uh, yeah, reading Representing God for me was like, wow, I can, I can do the kind of discourse analysis work mm-hmm. because you do discourse analysis also throughout the book, mm-hmm. even as you're describing, um, you know, the personalities of your interlocutors and some of their daily activities and things like that. Um, I was like, uh, it, it just brought a whole new dimension for me, I think, of thinking about how people operate in the world. Oh, I'm very glad to uh, glad to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I have two questions based on mm-hmm. some of the things you brought up. So I'll start, since we're on methodology, I'll start with the methodology question. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think one of the things that um, that comes up for me as a question about ethnography is how we are able to um, Im- immerse ourselves fully mm-hmm. um, within the communities that we're uh, learning about and studying, but also like retain some kind of um, scholarly objectivity. Now, Mm -hmm. I I don't believe in absolute objectivity with a capital O. I don't think any of us are ever fully removed from Mm -hmm. the questions that interest us. But I do wonder to what extent like immersing ourselves in those communities, at what point do we become an insider? Are we ever an insider? Mm -hmm. How do we navigate those dynamics? And so I'd be interested in hearing more from you about that. Yeah, I mean, this, this is like such an interesting question. Um, And it's one that I've, I've actually been thinking about a lot over the past term, because I've been teaching a a sort of ethnographic methods course to the, to the pre-field graduate students here at Manchester. Um, and it's it's a great seminar. They're a great group of students. And every time that I leave that seminar, I'm simultaneously like really invigorated and excited and committed to ethnography as an approach. Um, and yet I also have these kind of like ever multiplying questions about what it means to, you know, to conduct ethnography and and what kind of um, access we can ever really have, you know, to to another person's um, world. Um, so I, I, I think I kind of have two two kind of responses to your to your question. Um, but the the first is kind of just to say like, well, you know, yeah, I'm subjective. You know, as like as an anthropologist, I'm I'm a human who's interested in other humans and I I don't I don't necessarily aspire to objectivity um or or neutrality or or kind of anything like that. So I think, you know, as as an anthropologist, you yourself are your main research tool. And so that includes your physical body, your background, your personality, um, all of these experiences that have that have shaped you as a as a human being, right? And you are particular, you know, you are subjective. Um, so so in that sense, you know, my my gender, my race, my class, my nationality, my sexuality, um, you know, all of these aspects of personhood were were relevant in the field. 
Um, and, you know, someone from a different gender, race, religious background, and, and so on, they could spend time with, with the people that I spent time with, and they could write a book about it. And it might end up being an entirely different book than the one that I wrote. And, and I don't think that that would make either account sort of less valuable or, or less scholarly. I think it would just show a different perspective. Um, it would sort of, you know, it would shed light on a, a different aspect of the of the community. So, so for me, I think that's that's not necessarily a, a weakness in the method, and I'm sort of happy to uh, to claim it. Like, yes, this is a subjective methodology; it's a subjective process. Um, and and I mean, I think this this obviously doesn't just apply to ethnography. So, I you know, I would maybe argue that all scholarship, in in some sense, is subjective, right? There, there is no view from nowhere. And and I think oftentimes when people when people maybe pretend that uh, that there is that they're writing from you know a, a universal or neutral perspective, um, oftentimes I think they're just ascribing universality or neutrality to a position that's white or male or straight or you know represents another kind of socially dominant identity. Um, so so I think that's kind of one <laughs> one way of of answering your question. Um, but uh, another another kind of way of answering your question, and one that I guess gets more to this question of um, insider versus outsider, uh, is that, um, you know, sort of implicit throughout the book, uh, although I don't necessarily dwell on it, is the fact that I, I don't really share my interlocutor's vision of the good. Um, and so that that sort of raises particular challenges, I suppose, when, when doing this kind of work. So my, my interlocutors for this project have a radically different understanding of the world than I do, um, particularly when it comes to questions of sex and gender and sexuality. So, you know, just, just to take sort of one example, as someone who is pro-choice, I am glad to live in a country where abortion is available on the National Health Service. But I know that if my interlocutors were, uh, were in a position where they could set the laws of this country, that fact would change. And, and I would lose that aspect of, uh, of bodily autonomy. So, so in that sense, there was quite a strong divide <laughs> between inside and outside. Um, and there were kind of moments in the field where I, I you know, I did feel uncomfortable um, sometimes being in, in such close proximity with, with people, you know, with whom I had a very different understanding of the world. And I think it would be fair to say that my interlocutors sometimes felt this too. Um, at least on occasion, you know, they they worried that someone who had not been born again um, in in their language just really wouldn't be able to understand where they were coming from, and um, and and I think that that's a, a perfectly reasonable position to hold. I think I think a lot of people take that view. Um, I think I would argue, and I'm sort of glossing um, glossing the anthropologist Michael Lambeck here. But I would argue that you don't necessarily have to agree with a moral position or, or practice to recognize that it is understood as a moral position or practice by someone else. So in, in other words, I, I sort of I don't think that I need to agree with my interlocutors on the question of abortion to recognize that for them, this is a matter of life and death. Uh, and and that you know I as as a scholar have an obligation to to sort of try and explain that position to my readers, um, even though as it happens it's it's sort of not one that I hold myself. Um, and and I actually think this is sort of a, a almost an ethical obligation on the part of the anthropologist. 
So you certainly don't have to agree with your interlocutors, and of course many people don't, but I think you are obliged to um, to attempt to understand um, and and kind of represent their vision of the world, right? Because you and you can't actually analyze something without first trying to understand it, right? Because those are sort of the, you know, the two kind of aspects of ethnography are that you describe what's happening, but you also analyze it. And I think your analysis isn't worth very much if you haven't um, made a sort of, you know, an effort to to understand what these things mean from the perspective of your of your interlocutors. I mean, that there's I'm so I'm, I'm definitely not saying that this is easy. Um, and I'm certainly, you know, I'm not saying that there aren't limits to this approach. So I think every anthropologist will will draw different lines in the field around these issues um, this will depend on their own kind of personal beliefs and values, but it will also maybe depend on what's safe and practical and realistic um, in terms of your own sort of mental and physical health and taking into account your own positionality. So, so there are many cases, I think, where it's, you know, it's much safer or more practical to carry out fieldwork with those um, with whom you share a moral vision uh, or, you know, maybe where your own kind of maybe your own moral and political commitments um, sort of compel you to, to work with a community with whom you feel that sort of moral kinship. Uh, so, so it's certainly a, a complex question and it's, it's one I think for which there are no easy answers. Um, and yeah, I've got to say like the, the more time I spend discussing this with, uh, with the kind of pre-field students here at Manchester, the more, the more questions I end up having about it. Yeah. I think for me too, the, the, you know, a lot of my graduate courses have been very theory driven. And so we've been thinking about a lot of these big questions of representation. And, um, you know, I, I don't think that there is an easy answer, but I really do appreciate your, um, your, uh, your candor and your um, forthrightness about how <laughs> you, you approach, how you approach it for yourself. I think it's really mm-hmm. interesting what you said um, in the first part of your answer about like, you as the anthropologist, you are your research tool. Um, mm-hmm. And so understanding yourself, first of all, as, as you know, where are you coming from and understanding your own background and, and your own characteristics and how that shapes your interactions with other people. But then, as you say, in your, in the second part of your answer, um, really, really working hard to understand the reality uh, that is present for your interlocutors. And that kind of leads me actually into the last question mm-hmm. that I had about um, about the book, which was kind of just a point of interest for me. So while I have you here, I'm going to take advantage. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, and, and pick your brain a little bit. So um, one thing that's been really, really interesting to me in my research is the idea that um, language creates different realities mm-hmm. for people. Um, and that seems to to come out for me a lot in your description of like people's like moral centers where they Mm -hmm. uh their their understandings of the world and what positions they're coming from and I think you um you highlight very well throughout representing God at least it stood out to me um how um there's this this tension between the secular legal conception of reality Mm -hmm. of of where religion's place is in the world right um, and then there's a very different kind of religious theological conception that your interlocutors seem to be coming from. Um, 
For example, there's this really great moment in the book that just has stood out to me um, since I read it, and I keep going back to it and thinking about it, um, where you describe, and you talked about this a little bit earlier when you talk about um, life and death and and mm-hmm. salvation, um, but you talk about in the book a little bit about how how the idea of hell for your interlocutors is a concrete reality, this like mm-hmm. fiery, burning, you know, eternal torture is, mm-hmm. is a very real, present reality for your interlocutors in a way that perhaps uh, for others of us who don't share that moral center, um, you know, that that fate doesn't feel inevitable. And so mm-hmm. being able to understand um, where the, the, the ways in which your interlocutors are conceiving of reality, I think, mm-hmm. is so important um, to, to understand what's driving their, uh, their activism, right? So um, yeah. I was wondering if you could, yeah, just like speak to that at all the way, I mean, you've already started, but the ways in which these competing senses of reality kind of play out in the legal sphere in the UK. Yeah, no, thank you for the question. It's a, it's a really interesting one. Um, and yeah, I think, I think you've sort of framed it exactly right in, in terms of um, this idea of competing realities and ultimately realities that are, that are incompatible. Um, and yeah, the, the, the way that that kind of plays out in these, in these legal cases. So I guess just to, just to maybe tell the listeners a little bit, um, about the idea of hell, um, for, for the conservative evangelicals at, at Christchurch with whom I was working and, um, also for the, for the staff and clients of the Christian Legal Center, um, hell is not sort of a, a, a kind of, abstract kind of concept or something that you know may or may not exist but we simply can't be sure um it it is a a reality and it is so uh so so maybe just to tell um you know the the listeners uh, a little bit about this uh this this idea of hell um for for my interlocutors the the world is really uh divided into two um so you are either saved and are going to heaven, or you are damned and will spend eternity in hell. Um, and from their position, the, the majority of people probably are in the latter category. Um, and that actually leads to an incredible amount of emotional angst uh, for, for people who, um, you know, who, who are aware that possibly the majority of people that they interact with every day, say when they, you know, go to the corner shop to buy a pint of milk or when they're waiting at the bus stop or when they, um, you know, see someone in the office that, uh, that many of these people that they're interacting with actually have an eternal destiny that is one of horror. Um, now, of course, the, I think the reality is that no one can sort of live thinking about that all of the time. But, uh, but one of the things that really, you know, you, you would sort of get compassion fatigue in, in a sense or, um, you know, salvation fatigue, it would sort of just be too, too kind of emotionally draining. But one of the things that, uh, that really stood out to me in the field was the fact that people really did think about this an awful lot. And, um, you know, they, they dwelled on it. They thought about it. It was discussed in sermons and, uh, and it was also, it was also something that uh, that came up oftentimes in uh, in say Bible studies or conversations with people, where people would feel very very guilty about the fact that they um, they weren't doing as much as they could to evangelize. 
Now for evangelicals, it's, you know, it's God who, who saves you. So in that sense, you know, if, if God wants to save someone, he doesn't necessarily need uh, some, you know, human person to, to, to kind of achieve that for him. But at the same time, uh, there is an obligation on you as an evangelical to be spreading the gospel uh, so as to help save people from, from this um, kind of horrific, uh, from this horrific future. And, and many people felt that they just weren't doing that enough. And hell also plays into the, um, into the, the kind of legal cases that I was looking at in that, again, many of the Christians involved in these cases actually see them as a way of spreading the gospel or spreading the message of salvation. Um, so many of these cases, as, I, as I've said, were, um, tend to be lost in the courts but at the same time, the people involved in them oftentimes still see some degree of success in the fact that they have effectively been able to write the gospel into a legal judgment. You know, they have been able to speak to the media about, about Jesus and about salvation. Um, you know, they've, they've been able to go on the BBC and go on Sky News and talk to this huge audience um, about about you know their their understanding of the um, you know the the reality of salvation through through Christ alone. So so in that sense, I think there is a kind of fundamental mismatch between certain sort of um, I guess kind of value pluralist understandings that that are often dominant in say you know a, a kind of metropolitan multicultural city like London where there's people from all over the world, people from all sorts of different different communities, different religious backgrounds who are all living together. And, and many people sort of adopt this idea of like, well, you know, you, you can live your way and I will live my way and we'll live side by side and we'll get along fine, right? For my interlocutors at, at a place like Christchurch or at the Christian Legal Center, that's sort of just not good enough, right? Because from their perspective, your way and my way might not be morally equivalent, Right. If one way leads to heaven and one way leads to hell, you know, for them, it's, it's a kind of, um, it's a kind of moral injustice and an abnegation of responsibility on their part if they aren't warning, you know, warning people, um, about, about the fact that, uh, that hell is, is where, where they will be spending their eternal destiny, um, un unless they, you know, find a saving, a saving faith in Jesus. I, yeah, I think that that resonates a lot with what I've been seeing in my own research too. Yeah, so I really think this this concept of of um, you know how how concrete the reality of hell is for your interlocutors uh, mm -hmm. really demonstrates how the you know the the difficulties of living side by side when we have mm -hmm. really fundamentally competing worldviews, and I see that come out a lot um, in my work as well, and. Um, yeah, it was just, it was really, it was a fascinating thing for me to think about because I think often, you know, um, or it seems to me often in, in our religious studies scholarship, especially in the critical study of religion, we're not talking to me, it seems like often enough about the idea of competing realities being, mm -hmm. um, incompatible as you said there there's really no way to reconcile them and i think that raises the stakes of the debates i think it right. especially based on your description it especially raises the stakes of the debates for your interlocutors um right. you know as you as you articulated very nicely like their their sense of moral responsibility for saving you from this right. 
eternal damnation, I think is just, I think, I think if we don't come to the table with an understanding of how deeply that impacts their interactions with other people and with the world and with the legal system, you know, then we're missing a key part of, of what's happening there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, for sure. I see that we are very quickly running out of time. I want to, I I would keep you here all day if I could. (laughs) I just, I really did enjoy your book so much, but I want to um, tell, uh, I want to give our listeners an opportunity to hear from you where your work is going next. And um, yeah, what are you, what are you excited about? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm excited about lots of things, but to uh, to sort of focus focus on my sort of next project, I guess for for a minute, um, it's it's sort of heading from from one end of the kind of political theological spectrum to the other. So, so um, my first, you know, project and, and representing God uh, is, you know, was a was about a, a very um, conservative uh, religious community, but um, but I'm now looking at a kind of self described liberal religious tradition which is uh, Unitarian Universalism. Uh, and, and it's also been a sort of radical shift in terms of climate in that I'm kind of swapping the, the rain clouds of Southeast England for the sunshine and, uh, and desert of the US Southwest. Uh, although, you know, unfortunately with the, with the pandemic, this has uh, only been on Zoom so far. But, um, but, but so this project is sort of looking at my, uh, my new interlocutor's efforts to, to sort of live out a, a liberal um, a liberal kind of religious vision of the good in in a very politically polarized context, um, particularly looking at their efforts to um, to sort of campaign and uh, and advocate for climate justice, migrant rights, racial justice, and LGBTQ equality um, from from a sort of religious perspective. Uh, although the the term religion is a is a complicated one for them, and actually it's it's complicated for my evangelical interlocutors as well. Um, but but I'm sort of interested in how they're mobilizing this category of religion uh, towards sort of um, social social justice oriented ends. Um, how they're kind of challenging certain ideas of of what religion might look like uh, or or what religious politics might look like. Uh, so as I said, the the pandemic has meant that this project is is sort of still very much in its infancy. But but I am hoping to be able to do some in person field work at some point in in 2022, pandemic willing. Uh, and if we have like just two minutes, I'd also love to sort of plug like a, a side project that I've sort of been working on. Okay, great. <laughs> Savannah's giving me the thumbs up. So that's yes, it. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so I've also been uh, kind of working on this side project with my colleague, Michael Edwards at the University of Cambridge. And uh, we've been looking at the anthropology of grace. So, so I mentioned earlier that, um, you know, grace uh, turned out to be a really, a really important um kind of theoretical uh, category for, for, for this project. Um, and Michael, who is also an anthropologist of Christianity, found that in his work too. And, and yet um, we sort of noticed that there was this curious lack of attention that is paid to the idea of grace in, in the scholarly literature, so in the anthropology of religion. Um, and so we're kind of particularly interested in the way that, that, that sort of references to grace or the language of grace gets used to sort of include and exclude so especially through the creation of kind of binaries like, you know, grace versus debt or grace versus law or grace versus karma. So, so we're kind of interested in, in what kind of work our interlocutors are doing when they, when they kind of deploy this language of grace. 
And um, we've just co- uh, co-edited a special issue that should be out by the time that this airs. So it's called Always Something Extra, Ethnographies of Grace. And it's the spring 2022 issue of the Cambridge Journal of Anthropology. So it features work by just a, a really fantastic group of ethnographers, including Nina Mahadev, Nofit Itzak, Julian Summershoe, Gareth Breen, Giuseppe Tateo, and Hans Steinmuller. And it also has a fantastic afterword by Vincent Lloyd. So it's a, it's a really great collection. Um, obviously, I'm biased, but, uh, but I'd love to hear others' thoughts on it as well. So I, I just wanted to sort of um, mention it for your listeners in case, in case anyone else out there might be interested in the anthropology of grace. Yeah, absolutely. I know that I'm definitely going to be checking out both of these projects. I, yes, I'm, I'm so for it. I'm very excited to see all, uh, where all of your work goes. Um, thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. McIver. It means so much to me. Um, and I've really enjoyed being able to chat with you. Um, I want to give our listeners just one more reminder about your book. So the full title, in case you're looking for it, which you should be, (laughs) Representing God, Christian Legal Activism in Contemporary England, and once again, published in 2020 by Princeton University Press. Thank you so much, Dr. McIver. Well, thank you so much for for the invitation and for the conversation. It's been um, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I really look forward to uh, to reading your book when it when it comes out, too. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks so much, Savannah and Maeve, for this excellent episode today. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode. So please head over to social media, like, share, comment. We'd love to know what you thought and continue the conversation there. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Also, If you go to our website at religiousstudiesproject.com, you can find a transcript of this episode and more information about it. And of course, we appreciate any and all support you can give. Please consider heading to our Patreon at patreon.com slash projectrs, where you can sign up for a monthly donation for as little as $1 a month, or head over to PayPal, where you can give us a one-time donation. We're grateful for whatever support you can give. So thanks so much. And Look forward to seeing you next week, same time, same place. And until then, all that's left to say is thanks Thanks for for listening. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR, and the IAHR, and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organization. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Andy Alexander and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Savannah Finver and our opportunities digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews. Video editing by Alison Isidore. Podcast transcription by Jaden Bartasius. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, iTunes and all other portals. Thanks for listening. <laughs>